Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Okay. Perfect. All right. Thanks, Alex. Okay. So good morning, everyone. So today we're, I'm going to spend some time talking about uh, asymptomatic bacteria and recurrent UTIs. And regardless uh, for the faculty out there, uh, wh whatever specialty within subspecialty within urology you focus on, you know that we all have to manage these issues at, at various times throughout our day, looking at urine samples and understanding how to analyze them um, and how to interpret them, what to do. And for the residents, it's critically important that you feel comfortable managing these two things because moving forward as we just said you're going to see a lot of this and also as urologists we have to be the ones that really practice appropriately because there's a lot of mismanagement throughout many fields in in, in tackling these issues in the past year two big guidelines were published and then also as Alex mentioned the Campbell's chapter that I authored with two of my awesome partners, Matt Rutman and Gina Badalato. Um, and so throughout this talk, we're gonna be referencing those guidelines as well as the Campbell's chapter. Okay, so we all know that urinary tract infections are incredibly common. They are responsible for many, many office visits as well as emergency room visits. They are extremely common in women. And once a woman has one, they are more likely to have another one throughout their life. As a result of all of this, the, the costs associated with UTIs are staggering for sure. So the first thing I need to do is we need to frame this discussion. We need to make sure we're all on the same page as far as terminology, because a lot of these terms are used interchangeably and they really should not be. So a urinary tract infection is the inflammatory response to bacteria, and it is often associated with pyuria and bacteria. Keep in mind, bacteria just means the presence of bacteria in the urine, not equivalent to a UTI. Likewise, pyuria, the, equivalent, the presence of white blood cells in the urine, not equivalent to a UTI. Cystitis is a clinical syndrome based on symptoms, and it's often secondary to bacteria, but keep in mind, it could be non-infectious. So don't always assume when somebody presents with symptoms of dysuria and frequency that the UTI is the answer. You have to keep in mind other things like bladder cancer, painful bladder syndrome, so we don't wanna miss other diagnoses that are critical. And then pyelonephritis is when the urinary tract infection affects the upper tract. So this is a guideline, this is a table taken straight from the AUA recurrent UTI guidelines that were published in 2019. And in my mind, they were long in the making. It's, it was about time that the AUA tackled this. Uh, the EAU has guidelines, the Canadian American Neurologic Association has guidelines on recurrent UTIs. And so finally, the AUA came out with guidelines last year. I was not an author, I was just a peer reviewer. But this guideline, this is a, a table taken straight from there. And it's important, again, with terminology to realize that uncomplicated urinary tract infections are different than complicated urinary tract infections. And throughout this talk, I'm going to be focusing on uncomplicated UTIs, which are UTIs that exist that occur in patients with anatomically and functionally normal urinary tracts. That is different from complicated, which affects people, let's say, who've had urologic surgery before, born with anatomic abnormalities, other things that put them into the complicated category. And the index patient in this guideline and that I will be focusing on today are uncomplicated UTIs in women. The definition of recurrent UTI is two culture documented infections in a six month period or three in a 12 month period. And keep in mind that asymptomatic bacteria simply means the presence of bacteria in the urine not associated with symptoms. With recurrent UTIs, there are two different types, essentially. There's a reinfection, which is when there's a new infection, um, and then bacterial persistence, which is important to look for as well, because that could be there's an anitis somewhere in the urinary tract that's going to continue to infect patients, for example, a stone. So as you're working people up, we need to think about these two different types of infections. So how do UTIs happen? Well, we know that it starts in an, from an, it's an ascending route. The bacteria originate from the bowel or vaginal epithelium and then travel up to the urethra and, and invade into the bladder. There's a lot of focus on uropathogenic E. coli that I will get to in a minute, but this is a great chart. It's a little hard to see, um, but the idea here is that there are many different urinary pathogens. This is taken from the EAU guidelines, and you can see in the red boxes the gram-negative aerobic organisms such as E. coli and Klebsiella, Citrobacter. These are the most common organisms that are responsible for UTIs. There's also the non-fermenter Pseudomonas. 
and then the gram-positive organisms. So as we're thinking about pathogens, these are the ones that we are typically responsible for the UTIs. Now I mentioned UPEC, so uropathogenic E. coli. There's been a lot of research into looking at these particular organisms. And the idea with UPEC is that the, through type one pili, the E. coli invades into the urothelium. And then what happens is they sort of set up shop in the submucosal layers. They form these intrabacterial communities and then they eventually form these quiescent intracellular reservoirs. And the reason this is really important is that you may have a patient who has E. coli and you treat them with culture-specific antibodies, sorry, culture-specific antibiotics, and yet you can't clear the urine. They may get better and then two weeks later, the E. coli emerges again. And you kind of scratch your head and say, why does this keep happening? So we really do believe that E. coli is living in the bladder wall and that explains the frequent recurrence in a lot of these patients. What about the gram positives in that uropathogen chart I showed gram positives? So are gram positives really significant in terms of an etiology factor for UTIs? So this is a great study published in the New England Journal in 2013. And what these authors did was they asked that very question, what is the significance of having gram positive organisms in the urine? So they looked at 202 paired specimens in women with UTIs. Paired specimens means that they had these women who came in with clinical symptoms. They had them void, do a midstream clean catch sample. Then they had them drink some water and then they catheterized them. And what they found was when they compared the two samples was that E. coli had a high positive predictive value at low counts, yet enterococcus and group B strep, two gram positive organisms had a very low positive predictive value. So these researchers concluded that gram positives rarely cause an acute uncomplicated UTI in women. And interestingly, they found that 25% of patients who had positive voided, sorry, I should say that differently. In the catheterized sample patients, of those that were negative, 25% did have a positive voided specimen. So it makes you think also about how we're collecting urine samples. So the conclusion of this, and it has definitely helped guide my management, is that gram-positive organisms are rarely the cause of symptomatic UTIs. So I mentioned the AUA recurrent UTI guideline. Um, this shows you the authors. And again, the, the, the index patient is un an uncomplicated in UTI in a woman. Now keep in mind, this guideline does not apply to the following categories, pregnant women, those who are immunocompromised, we talked about complicated UTIs, or patients who have Foley's or CI, who perform CIC, and then if they have systemic signs of bacteria. So the rest of this talk, I'm focusing on uncomplicated UTIs in women. So in this guideline, there are six evaluation statements that I show here. I'm gonna break them up into two groups of three. So you can see here, the first three are that it's critically important to obtain a history and perform a physical exam. Making a diagnosis, you must document a positive urine culture. And then when to report to obtain repeat urine studies is important as well. So how do I evaluate these patients? When I'm taking a history in patients in these women, it's really important to document how many infections they've had in the past. And don't just take their word for it. Do they actually have data? Did they have cultures? What are the precipitating factors if they're aware that triggered these UTIs and what are associated risk factors? And then also important is symptoms because we all know you cannot just look at urine samples in a vacuum. As I mentioned, bacteria and pyuria is not the same thing as a UTI. So in making a diagnosis, we have to be thinking about symptoms in conjunction with urine results. Physical exam isn't necessarily that helpful, but there are a couple of key areas to focus on. We wanna make sure that the patient is not distended in the suprapubic area, so perhaps incomplete emptying could be contributing. In, in older women, we're looking at prolapse and then looking at the quality of the vaginal epithelium, particularly in postmenopausal women, and then obviously the urine results. This is a chart that, that we put into the Campbell's chapter uh, looking at risk factors. And it's really important when you're taking history that you try to tease these out. Some of them are not modifiable, like for example, having a relative that has a, a history of UTIs. But that gives you some insight into why this particular patient might be more susceptible. But then there are some that are modifiable, for example, like sexual activity. And specifically a new sexual partner within the past year has been shown to increase risk factors. Another thing that I really try to focus on is recent antimicrobial use. A lot of these women with recurrent UTIs often have other conditions such as chronic sinusitis, where they're constantly taking antibiotics for one condition or another. And the more antibiotics that they're exposed to, the more likely they are to develop infections because they're really just wiping out their protective flora. So it's important to elicit that information. Spermicide use is another thing that's important. 
it's been shown to increase the incidence of UTIs, yet a lot of women actually don't even know whether they're using spermicides because their male partner is often the one that's buying the condoms that may or may not have the spermicide. So these are just things to talk about with patients and ask about. Again, some of it will help you have insight as to why the patients are getting the infections, and some of it you'll be able to modify and hopefully help decrease their risk. So I mentioned symptoms. Symptoms are really important. So the hallmark symptoms of a, a UTI are having painful urination, and an acute change in the baseline voiding symptoms. There's an article that's referenced frequently, Benz et al. and JAMA 2002, that, that shows that women who present with two out of three of the following symptoms, dysuria, urgency, or frequency without vaginal discharge are likely to have a UTI. And then in the elderly, there's a lot of confusion about how to manage patients it, the elderly patients with UTIs, and I'm going to get to that in a few slides, but keep in mind that even in the elderly, specific signs and symptoms localized to the GU tract are the most important things to focus on when trying to decide whether to treat in older patients. So urine, how we collect urine samples is also really important because it can cloud our results if we're simply just looking at a urine culture without realizing how it was obtained. So obviously, ideally, we get midstream clean catch samples, but there are many patients that won't be able to do this appropriately. Patients who have an increased BMI are going to have a very hard time separating their labia and providing you with a midstream clean catch. Likewise, those with a significant vaginal atrophy, patients with poor manual dexterity, if they are wheelchair bound, if they have a pessary in their vaginal, uh, in the vagina, it's a foreign body in the vagina, that's going to contrib contribute to contamination. And then the last bullet is very basic and obvious, yet you'd be surprised if you actually ask how many patients are given, for example, in the ER, they're given a bedpan and a urine sample, the results are analyzed based on that. So there are many different patients that you have to think twice about just asking for a midstream clean catch sample. You really need to think about catheterized samples. And that's something that has definitely guided my management of patients over the years. And what I have found is that a lot of patients come to our practices with what I call the gray area symptoms or vague symptoms of UTIs, such as, let's say, nocturia for a week or, you know, intermittent mild vaginal burning. And yet, if you just look at a midstream clean catch sample, you might say, oh, sure, look, they have a UTI. So we decided a few years ago to look retrospectively at patients who presented in our office for management either of UTIs or for incontinence or any other uh, reason that brought them to the office. Um, and what I did was I separated them into categories. And if I thought that their symptoms weren't really consistent with a UTI, despite the fact that they had a positive voided culture, we brought them back to get catheterized samples. And what we found are that half of the patients who had voided samples that were positive had negative catheterized samples. So just by getting a catheterized sample alone in this category of patients uh, who had what I call the vague symptoms of a UTI, we spared these patients antibiotics. And this is really important information. And so what we now with my practice, if I have avoided sample and someone has a urine analysis that either has negative nitrites or less than 10 white cells, I essentially consider that negative and will move on unless I think the patient truly has symptomatic UTI. So keep that in mind, catheterized samples have high utility in this patient population. Okay, the next three evaluation statements talk about workup. So cystoscopy and upper tract imaging. Um, we have mentioned that we need to definitely document urine results. And then the, the last one is the patient-initiated treatment. So we'll get to that in a minute. But as far as the workup, this is a very common misconception. A lot of patients get sent to me, and in the chief complaint and the referring indication, it'll say needs CAT scan has UTI, needs imaging. Is that actually accurate, that patients with women with recurrent, uncomplicated UTIs need imaging? Actually, it's not true. The yield is very low, and it is not recommended by several different organizations, including the American College of Radiology, the C Canadian Neurologic Association, and the EAU. And now we can add the AUA to this list because in this recurrent UTI guideline, imaging is not recommended. Now keep in mind, there are still some high-risk patients and we certainly don't want them to fall through the cracks. So if you have patients with UTIs who have unexplained gross hematuria, so negative cultures, you definitely wanna get upper tract imaging. Patients who have microscopic hematuria in between symptomatic episodes, um, those with pilo or an atypical presentation, so I certainly don't want you to leave this talk thinking nobody needs imaging, but the index patient, women with recurrent uncomplicated UTIs do not need imaging as part of their workup for why they're getting these infections. And if you are going to get imaging, 
start with a renal bladder ultrasound, plus or minus a KUB. CAT scan should definitely not be the imaging study of choice. What about cystoscopy? That's another thing. Patients are often sent from, to my office saying that they need a cystoscopy because they're getting UTIs. Does the data support that recommendation? Well, let's look at this. So here are two studies that were done. The first one was prospective. The second one is retrospective. And these authors concluded that in the workup of women with UTIs, cystoscopy is really has very, very low yield in terms of helping to figure out why these women are getting UTIs. So I did my own study several years ago, and I looked retrospectively at my patient population over a four-year period. Similar, looked at patients who had UTIs and found the similar results. That in patients who had upper tract imaging, cystoscopy rarely contributed anything to our evaluation. And so that has changed my practice after I looked at this patient population, and I concur with all these guidelines. And in fact, the AUA current UTI guidelines reference this study in support of not needing to do cystoscopies for the evaluation of women. Um, so keep in mind that a cystoscopy is not recommended if a woman has gross hematuria but has symptoms and a positive culture. So that's important. If they're Asymptomatic with gross hematuria, obviously we want to think about getting, then you need to get a cystoscopy. But if they do not have, if they have gross hematuria in conjunction with the UTI, they do not need to have a cystoscopy. What about symptomatic self-star therapy? That was recommendation number six. And this gets a lot of support. There are a lot of practitioners out there who have patients who continually come to the office or call them with recurrent UTIs. And so this has become a widespread practice where basically the, the patient gets the green light to go ahead and start antibiotics with onset of symptoms. Ideally, patients are asked to give samples, but what, what happens is that patients are busy, they get lazy, they say, oh, this is like my typical, pre I, I know when I get a UTI, it's the same symptoms I always get. And so they just go ahead and start taking antibiotics. And historically, patients were given broad spectrum antibiotics, often take, you know, told to take these antibiotics for, for seven days, 14 days. And really the studies that justify this method are old and they were done at a time when we did not have the degree of antibiotic resistance that we have. And so this is one place where I disagree with the recommendations in the AUA guideline, although it doesn't tell patients to write, you know, run to the symptomatic self-start that is mentioned in the guideline as an option. And I really disagree. So again, this is based on my anecdotal experience where I just think that the patient population that we're talking about gets very nervous with the onset of any mild symptom and is gonna be quick to run to the, their medicine cabinet and start taking antibiotics. So this is a study that we published recently. And what we did was I had gone to, I go to the student health centers at Columbia and at Barnard and at our medical center and speak to the practitioners who are seeing all these women with UTIs. And after giving the, the, my talk about how to manage these patients, the student health, uh, one of the nurse practitioners, Annika March, looked back at their data and their typical practice was that any woman who came in with a UTI, with symptoms of a UTI, they would just go ahead and give them an antibiotic. And after giving it, after they would give a sample, but they would give them the antibiotic immediately. And after listening to me talk and, and presenting a lot of data, she went ahead and looked back at 67 patients that they had treated in this manner and found that 43% of these women had negative cultures despite the fact that they had symptoms that were suggestive of a UTI. So as a result, the student health centers now have changed their management and they are doing things like providing patients with urinary analgesics initially after providing samples and then waiting to at least see a preliminary urine analysis in an effort to really cut down on unnecessary antibiotic use. So kudos to Annika March. And you know, this, the more that you see patients like this where you don't rush to give them an antibiotic, you'll feel validated because you'll see that you're gonna be sparing a lot of patients antibiotics. And so in our chapter, we state this very clearly that we do not feel that self-start therapy is warranted and justified, particularly in this era of widespread multidrug resistant organisms and antibiotic resistance. So again, we encourage patients to use urinary analgesics, hydration and other things while we're waiting for preliminary results, unless they really are uncomfortable, unless they have very strong symptoms. And that confidence to tell people not to take antibiotics right away is really based on this. The concept that acute uncomplicated UTIs rarely progress to severe disease, even if untreated. So what you need to ask yourself when you see a patient like this is, what is the primary goal of treatment and how can I make them symptomatically improved while not just running to give them an antibiotic? And this is a great uh, quote from this article in the New England Journal in 2012 that I fall back on a lot. 
All right, so getting back to the guideline, there are two guideline statements regarding asymptomatic bacteria. So even in patients who have documented recurrent UTIs in the past, you don't need to sort of as a surveillance mechanism get samples unless they're symptomatic. And in general, we should not be treating patients with asymptomatic bacteria. So we, we, hopefully everyone is now aware that there is a urinary microbiome. When I was a medical student and a resident, we were always taught that urine is sterile. But now, thanks to some great work from these researchers, we know that is actually not the case. Urine is not sterile. Um, and with this knowledge, it makes you sort of think twice about the whole concept of asymptomatic bacteria, which is almost like a misnomer now, because we now know that everybody has bacteria that live and thrive throughout the urinary tract. And this has to change our, with this knowledge, it needs to change the way that we approach these patients. The last bullet on the slide, I love this quote, challenge of interpretation. And what this means is that now that we understand that there's so much bacteria that normally inhabits the urinary tract, what do we do with that information? Some, some providers look at this and say, oh, look, there's so much bacteria, we have to give more antibiotics. But the flip side of this is let's look at this and say, wait a minute, everybody has some bacteria. We're never going to eradicate all of it. And in fact, many of these bacteria are protective. So why are we even trying? So it makes you think differently about the whole approach to looking at a urine culture where we see bacteria. So these are just some, some numbers that show you how prevalent asymptomatic bacteria is, um, and particularly with age, it becomes more common. We know that it's common with sexual activity. Even in men, it becomes more common. And as you all should be aware that people who live in long-term care facilities have an increased incidence, and then obviously patients with chronic indwelling folies, the incidence is definitely 100%. So this should just show you how common bacteria is and again, give you more confidence to not run to give antibiotics to everybody just because bacteria is showing up in their urine. So as far as formal recommendations, the Infectious Disease Society of America published a guideline in 2005 that said we should not be screening for or treating for ASB except for in two categories. And these categories are extremely important, pregnant women, and those who are about to undergo urologic procedures that invade the urothelium mucosa. So if we anticipate bleeding in the urothelium, then those patients need to be treated. Otherwise, even if they have diabetes, even if they're elderly, even if they have spinal cord injuries, we should not be screening for or treating ASB. The USPSTF published their own recommendation in 2008 and then updated it again in 2019 that concurred with the IDSA. A Cochrane review, again, supported looking at all the data said we should not be treating ASB. And this is because historically there was a fear that if we left bacteria alone, it would lead to hypertension, renal failure, and perhaps even GU malignancy. But with time, the data does not substantiate this. And in fact, we now know that not only is it not a good idea to treat, it's actually potentially harmful. So th these are two great studies that were done in an Italian STD clinic, and they were published three years apart, same researchers, just longer follow-up. And what they did was they looked at women who showed up in their clinic who had documented recurrent UTIs, and initially they decided to put them into two different groups. In one group, they observed patients over six and 12 months periods, um, and in the other group, they treated them when they came in for their surveillance urine samples, if they had asymptomatic bacteria. And what they found is that in the group where they left them alone, if they were asymptomatic, they had a much lower incidence ultimately of developing clinical UTIs than in the group that was treated for asymptomatic bacteria. With their extended analysis, they found not surprisingly that treatment, persistent treatment and recurrent treatment of asymptomatic bacteria leads to reinfection with resistant organisms and short-term increased incidence of symptomatic infection. So the that treating asymptomatic bacteria is dangerous. Alex, it seems to be some background noise going on. Yeah, sorry, a bunch of people just became unmuted. Just give me one second. And no problem. Everyone, if you could please do microphones. Uh, hold on one second. The whole no problem. Give it one second. <laughs> Tremulous reinfection with antibody. Okay, you're good to go. Sorry about that. Can you hear me, Alex? Yes, you're good. Okay, okay. Um, 
so the conclusion of these studies is that treating asymptomatic bacteria is actually dangerous. What about um, other organisms that actually are protective? So a lot of people tend to treat enterococcus in the urine. But remember when I showed the, the study that looked at gram positives, they concluded those researchers that we shouldn't be treating. And in fact, enterococcus can have a very protective role in preventing overgrowth of, of uropathogenic bacteria such as E. coli. So think twice when you see a culture uh, in a patient, a culture that shows enterococcus, particularly in someone without symptoms. So I mentioned before there was this infectious disease guideline in 2005, but there, and it did show the certain categories of patients like those with spinal cord injuries or patients with diabetes that should not be treated, but there were many populations that weren't addressed. So in the past year, the IDSA updated their guideline. The, there was a t initially they concurred in the beginning of this guideline, they talked about all those populations they had mentioned in the past and supported the recommendations from 2005. But then this guideline goes even further and looks at several different populations. So they looked at children and said, should we be treating asymptomatic bacteria in children? And the answer is absolutely no. So people got nervous about this. And historically, there was concern that if you left bacteria in the urine tract of children, they would go on to have renal scarring. But the studies were all, are old and were flawed. And so the current recommendation is that even in the pediatric population, we do not treat asymptomatic bacteria. What about the transplant patients? We have a very active transplant population at Columbia. I see a lot of these patients. A lot of them are sent on a monthly basis to go give blood tests and urine samples just for surveillance. That is not a good practice. And this guideline is something that all of you should become familiar with and really be able to cite back to people who are sending you patients from the renal transplant world. Because the data here shows that, you know, there used to be a fear and in many of the, the transplant providers, I think there is a fear that there might be a, a damage to the allograft and that it may affect graft function. It may contribute to pyelonephritis if we leave asymptomatic bacteria. But the reality is none of that stuff has been shown to be the case. But we do know that the more antibiotics this population sees, they simply are just going to develop more and more resistance. And then when they need antibiotics, they're going to be in trouble. So this is a new recommendation, 2019. Please remember it. It's very, very important. Patients with transplants beyond one month should not be having surveillance urine samples. And if it is, if urine samples are shown, they should not be treated. What about other, other transplants like lung transplants? Same thing. So it's very important to be familiar with this guideline and feel comfortable citing it back to somebody when they start challenging you. Why are you not treating this patient? There's bacteria in the urine, they're immunosuppressed. And then what about those undergoing non-neurologic surgery? So we all see a lot of these patients, particularly the orthopedic population. Patients get sent to us to quote, clear them for their orthopedic procedures when they're having joint replacements. <coughs> this guideline, nicely shows that that should not be the current practice either. And a lot of that is based on this study that was done in Europe. <coughs> Excuse me, this is a multinational study in Europe and this was done by a lot of different orthopedic surgeons. They were looking at their patient populations who were presenting for, for knee and hip replacements. And it was basically surgeon discretion whether they treated patients with asymptomatic bacteria or not. But what they did at the end was that they went back retrospectively and looked at this patient population and what they found was that the prosthetic joint infection rate was definitely significantly higher in their patients who had asymptomatic bacteria. However, and this is very important, there was no significant difference in the joint infection rate between the patients who were treated for their asymptomatic bacteria and those who were not treated. And additionally, this is very interesting. The patients with asymptomatic bacteria overall had a higher incidence of gram-negative organisms in their joints if they had an infection, but it was not the same organism as they found in the urine cultures. So this is really important information to feel comfortable to remember and feel comfortable citing back to the orthopods who send you their patients for clearance. What the researchers concluded from this is that although asymptomatic bacteria may be a risk factor for joint infections, giving antibiotics preoperatively, specifically targeting the bacteria did not confer any benefit. And really what they decided is that those patients who have asymptomatic bacteria that mere presence of bacteria is probably an indication that that population overall is at a higher likelihood of developing infections and bacteria everywhere. So keep that in mind. Don't treat patients prior to joint replacements just because they have bacteria in their system, in their urinary tract. So what about the elderly? I mentioned earlier on that we're gonna talk about this. This is another patient population that, causes, that contributes to a lot of confusion and mismanagement. 
Very common uh, patients, older patients will show up in an emergency room after a fall or their caregivers are just confused because they're, I sorry, concerned because the patients are confused and lo and behold, the urine shows bacteria. The diagnosis in the ER on discharge is, is UTI. Is that appropriate? Actually, it is not. So even in older patients who have functional and or cognitive impairment, with, if they present with bacteria and delirium, but they have no localizing symptoms such as dysuria or a baseline change in their typical urine symptoms, they should not be treated with antibiotics and diagnosed with a UTI. You have to think about other things that can be contributing to their delirium and confusion, most significantly their hydration status. And so it's very important that we realize this, that we have to think about other things because the presence of bacteria in the urine, as I showed with the slides that talk about the prevalence of asymptomatic bacteria, the prevalence is extremely high in this patient population. So it's gonna, the urine results are gonna confound your ability to make a good diagnosis. So again, this is very important when you get consulted on these patients for the residents out there. Even in the elderly, the hallmark symptom is dysuria, painful urination. These patients often have chronic urinary symptoms like incontinence. They might be using three to four pads a day. So it's gonna be, first of all, hard to get a good sample. This is a perfect population that we should be thinking about catheterized samples. And overall, their baseline avoiding dysfunction is gonna confound the diagnosis and management. But there's no data that shows that antibiotics targeting the bacteria ameliorates their confusion at all. And that's important. So for those of you who treated these patients, you'll know that you can give them a course of antibiotics and they'll probably show up two weeks later with delirium or confusion again, because you haven't addressed the baseline issues. They could have just have overall cognitive impairment, but hydration status is really, really important in this patient population. And keep in mind that antibiotics are very toxic and they're even more toxic in older patients. So you have to really use them even more judiciously in that patient population. Okay, getting back to treating now, treating symptomatic patients, there are three guideline statements about which antibiotics to use. Um, and keep in mind that when we use these antibiotics, we wanna use them for as short a duration as possible. So the IDSA also has a guideline published in 2010 that talks about which antibiotics should be used, but not just in terms of what's going to work the best, but what's going to overall be the best for the patient and society at large, because we want to use narrow spectrum antibiotics as much as possible for uncomplicated UTIs. So for the residents out there, this is highly testable information. First line antibiotics for acute symptomatic UTIs. You want to be prescribing nitrofurantoin for five days, not seven or 10 days, and then back to them for three days. Again, not seven or 10 days. Fostamycin is an antibiotic that, has, um, that works really well for uncomplicated UTIs. In Europe, it's given all the time, but in our country, insurance companies make it prohibitively expensive, so it's not, it shouldn't really be your go-to first-line agent just from a cost standpoint. And then pivmacillin is an antibiotic that's not available in the United States right now. Um, and then you see here on the right, very important, quinolones, not first-line therapy, nor are beta-lactams. So despite having these guidelines that were published in 2010, I see so many patients every week who are treated with other antibiotics as first line, like quinolones, like beta-lactams. And so I decided to do a study looking at this. And so I worked with Erica Ditkoff, who was a phenomenal medical student at Columbia a few years ago. She's now a urology resident at the Brigham. And we, we collaborated with our colleagues at Vanderbilt with Roger Dimikowski and his team. And we looked at, uh, we submitted, we, we sent out these questionnaires online to providers, urologists, gynecologists, internists, family medicine, and ER physicians in the New York section. So several of you on this um, talk right now may have participated in this survey. Um, and then also down in the Southeast section via the Vanderbilt folks. And what we found, which was not surprising to me, is that although these providers are treating patients with asymptomatic bacteria and UTIs on a regular basis, greater than 50% had no idea that there was this specific guideline out about asymptomatic bacteria, and 30% did not use first-line agents for uncomplicated cystitis, despite the fact that there are evidence-based guidelines out there. So this just uh, reconfirmed what I was seeing, wasn't surprising, but it was good to finally see this in print. It's very important to understand that these guidelines are out there and we should use them. So some people say to me, well, how can nitrofurantoin be first line in older patients? It's dangerous, it's not allowed. The insurance companies say, no, you can't prescribe that. That's based on the um, beers criteria, which for those of you not familiar, these are guide, this is a, a paper that's published initially in 91 and it's been updated several times. And it's looking at medications, it's different categories of medications to avoid or to use in caution in the elderly population. So nitrofurantoin is listed, however, 
It's specifically listed because it's, it has to be avoided for long-term use in patients with a creatinine clearance less than 30. So that does not say you cannot, it doesn't say to avoid it in patients for an episode of acute cystitis. So if you get a call from an insurance company or from the pharmacy more likely saying the insurance won't cover it, it's not allowed in a woman who's 70, that is false and you throw this back at them and get it covered. So those of you who know, you well, know me well know that I really can't stand quinolones. So this is my public service announcement as a part of this talk that we should be avoiding quinolones at all costs, particularly in this patient population. It's not necessary. They are associated with significant side effects. You can see that everyone hopefully is familiar with the incidence of tendinitis and tendon ruptures, but there are many more adverse effects. There was a great um, article published in 2017 in Urology Practice talking about this fluoroquinolone-associated disability and mentions that chronic pain is a very underappreciated and underreported symptom. So in addition to the side effects that we do know about, like the tendon ruptures, a lot of these patients who are exposed to multiple courses of quinolones have significant chronic pain moving forward. And so as a result of this, the FDA issued a warning in 2016, so four years ago, saying that we should not be using quinolones for acute uncomplicated UTIs. Despite this warning, many practitioners continue to recommend them. So <clears throat> if you remember one thing from this talk, it is please avoid quinolones. They are not necessary and they are harmful. You can see in 2018, more side effects were mentioned, more, <clears throat> excuse me, more um, attention focused on mental health side effects, blood sugar disturbances, risk of aortic dissection, the list goes on and on and on. So there's absolutely no reason in this patient population unless they have extensive allergies and resistance to all other categories of antibiotics, you should not be using quinolones for UTIs. And kudos to the AUA for putting this in their Choosing Wisely campaign, saying the same thing, do not treat uncomplicated cystitis in women with quinolones. So what about antibiotic prophylaxis? So a lot of providers, you're out there, you're seeing these patients and you get frustrated. They keep coming back to your office with, with UTIs despite what you're, you're treating them appropriately in your mind. So what about using antibiotic prophylaxis? Very common practice. It is, it's not necessarily recommended by this guideline, but it certainly is mentioned as an option. This is another place where I disagree with the AUA guideline because I think it's a very bad strategy the support uh, in favor of antibiotic prophylaxis is really pretty old. Most of the studies were done in the 90s, the 80s, when there was not the same degree of antibiotic resistance um, and multidrug resistant bacteria. Um, and even those studies, what they found was that when, when patients were put on antibiotic prophylaxis, they weren't left on it indefinitely. And so once prophylaxis was, was discontinued, they were back to where they were in terms of getting UTIs again. And so the idea here is that it's just not a wise strategy to leave people on antibiotics indefinitely. It's going to alter their microbiome, set them up for multi-drug resistant resistance. Um, and it's just not a smart strategy. It also exposes them to a lot of risk. Now, one caveat is that in the, for women with postcoital UTIs, it, is, it does play a good role. And so I do think that's justified. But for the rest of the patients who you're just gonna put them on daily antibiotics, I would really, really think twice about it. The data is not great long-term and you're exposing them to significant risk. And as I mentioned, altering the, their microbiome. So rather than siding with the AUA guidelines, I, I support the, the statements from the EAU guidelines. Uh, they're a little bit more progressive, I think, in general in approaching UTIs. And the EAU guidelines say that there's a need for reconsidering long-term antibiotic prophylaxis in this patient population and think about alternative measures. Keeping in mind, antibiotics are risky. We know that a lot of patients have resistant organisms. It can cause C. difficile infections. So I don't need to hammer this home. You all know this, hopefully. Uh, antibiotics are dangerous and we need to think twice. So what other options do we have? Well, behavioral modification is really important. And even if some of it's not evidence-based, it just makes sense and it's easy to do. So you wanna to talk to them about particular practices related to sexual activity. Uh, overall, just good bladder habits, not holding urine all day long. Hydration, I'm gonna to get to that in a second, and overall good hygiene. So hydration is something that we've always talked to patients about for years, but we actually never had a great study until 2018 to talk to them about. So this was a study published in JAMA looking at women with culture-documented UTIs. They fit into the category of recurrent UTIs. And these were patients who at baseline weren't drinking much. And so in this study, what they did was they put patients into two groups. And in one group, they increased the baseline fluid intake by 1.5 liters more water each day. And simply by doing that, 
there was almost a 50% decrease in the incidence of UTIs. So this is a great study to talk to your patients about that shows a very basic, simple intervention contributes to much lower incidence of UTIs. What else is there for non-antibiotic prophylaxis? So those of you who know me well know that I'm a big fan of cranberry. But I tell patients all the time, if you were to Google or ask Siri, does cranberry work? You're going to get 85 answers. And the reason is that there's so many different products on the market. And because it's a supplement, it's not regulated by the FDA. And that's the problem. So all these studies that are done are done with different types of products, juice, concentrate, tablets. And so it's hard to draw conclusions because it's, it's not the same comparison. Another thing to keep in mind is that patients will often say, or cardiologists will come back to me and say, the patient can't take cranberry, they're on Coumadin. That's actually not true. There used to be a black box warning from the FDA, but that was removed in 2012. Um, so you absolutely can have patients on cranberry if they are taking Coumadin. Um, here's the data. The initial Cochrane review in 2008 supported the idea of using cranberry for women with recurrent UTIs. However, the follow-up Cochrane review in 2013, the data wasn't supportive. Yet, the last bullet is what's most important. As I mentioned, there's heterogeneity of products out there, but the most important thing is that the, the cranberry has to have 36 milligrams of proanthocyanidin. And if it does not, then it's almost useless to study it. So what I tell patients is if they go to the drugstore and buy cranberry, it typically will tell them it has 500 milligrams or 1,000 milligrams of cranberry. That's basically irrelevant. It's how many milligrams of proanthocyanidin that the product has. Um, here's a more recent meta-analysis that does support it. And so our recommendation in Campbell's is that you have to have a cranberry product that we know has 36 milligrams of pack. And if it does, then we recommend it strongly. And anecdotally, we can tell you that we've had tremendous results with patients taking this, these products that have 36 milligrams of pack. What about estrogen? So in the postmenopausal patient population, absolutely vaginal estrogen has been shown to decrease the risk of UTIs. Um, it works by reducing the local pH. It helps promote lactobacillus growth. Essentially, it just restores the vaginal flora to premenopausal levels. There are multiple different application methods. One thing that people get concerned about is systemic absorption. Data does not substantiate this. Patients who are using vaginal estrogen, when we studied their, the estrogen levels in the blood, they're essentially the same as placebo levels. Um, and so it is not absorbed widely systemically. Even patients with active breast cancer can be using vaginal estrogen. That's really important. There's a lot of concern, but we did put this into, into the Campbell's chapter. We looked at the data extensively. And so the take home here is that in postmenopausal women with UTIs, vaginal estrogen is safe and can be used. Now, what I do just to protect myself really is that if patients do have a history of cancer, I get their oncologist on board. Um, but I will tell you in all the years that I've been recommending this, it's, I, I can count on one hand the number of times I've been told that these patients shouldn't use vaginal estrogen. So it's really important to understand that and recommend this in the postmenopausal population. Now, some of you might say, oh, there's the vaginal lasers gotten very popular. Can we use that in lieu of vaginal estrogen? So the Mona Lisa Touch is the laser I'm talking about. It stimulates production of new collagen, and it's used for vaginal atrophy in postmenopausal women. However, there is absolutely no data looking at it specifically in terms of reducing the incidence of UTIs. So I, I do not support it. Also keep in mind that it's not FDA approved, so it's expensive. So it's hard for me to justify this to patients um, specifically as an indication to decrease the incidence of UTIs. So there are other agents that were not mentioned in the recurrent UTI guidelines, and that's because the, the authors of this guideline felt that there wasn't enough data in support of them. Um, and I would agree at this point. So some of the things that we're talking about are methamphetamine. Um, the data is not great, but I, I would say that's something that I use in my practice because anecdotally I have had significant uh, responses with this. So as a, you know, a last ditch effort to try to prevent patients from needing antibiotic prophylaxis, I do recommend methamphetamine, but it is not something that's recommended by the guideline and because the data is not so great. Likewise, the guideline says that the evidence in support of D-mannose is not strong enough to recommend it. Likewise with probiotics. Um, so these are things when patients ask me about them, what I generally say, for example, if someone's taking D-mannose, is that there isn't enough great data out there to recommend it, but I'm not against it. I'm, as you can tell from listening to me speak, in general, I would exhaust all non-antibiotic options. The problem with D-mannose, much like cranberry, is that there are def many different formulations available, and same with probiotics. So we just don't have studies out there telling us which products we should be recommending, but I'm never opposed to it. I just tell patients that there's not great data that we know that it will help. 
These are the final guideline statements as far as following patients. So this is really important. Um, clinicians should not perform post-treatment tests of cure urinalysis. That's a very common practice that you treat somebody with a symptomatic UTI, and then you bring them back to the office a week or two later to make sure that their infection is gone. Remember, we talked about asymptomatic bacteria and not being screened for or treated. So if you have a patient who has symptomatic improvement, you're done. They don't need to come back to check to see if the urine shows clearance of bacteria because it's irrelevant. Even if the culture still shows bacteria, we are not going to treat based on the data that I've shown you earlier. So test of cure should fall by the wayside. And always keep in mind that you should repeat urine cultures to guide further management. Cultures are important. So I'm going to conclude this talk referencing a great study that I, I, I think is really important for everybody to read, anybody who's interested in management of UTIs, because it really hammers home a lot of the points that, the, that there's ambiguity surrounding UTIs. The terminology itself is fraught with trouble. And just, you, it's very hard to put people into specific black and white categories. And so it's important for all of us clinicians out there to think about whether interventions, clinicians considering interventions should not ask whether the individual has a real, quote, UTI, but should ask instead whether there's evidence that antibiotic treatment directed at the bacteria is more likely to benefit than harm this individual. So this is a flow sheet that is in the new version of Campbell's. It's hard to see it so well on the slide. It's very busy, um, but you can pull it up electronically or in the hard copy. And this is just an algorithm that shows how we manage our patients with recurrent UTIs. And so in conclusion, remember, there are guidelines that you can quote and, and be familiar with in order to guide your management appropriately based on evidence on how to manage patients both with asymptomatic bacteria and the recurrent UTIs in women. Again, remember, this is talking about uncomplicated UTIs in women, very, very different from other populations that we may see. Um, but it's important to really be familiar with these guidelines and to feel confident, particularly when you're speaking with referring physicians, to know what's indicated and what's not indicated. That's it. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Cooper. That was a really great talk, really great review, high yield for residents as well as people in practice. I think a lot of things have changed, uh, like we talked about in the beginning of the presentation over the last 10, 15 years uh, and the way that people approach these. We do have a few uh, questions in the chat here. You did answer some of them. Um, so let me see here. Arvind Patel asked, um, do you get a catheterized specimen or not in a symptomatic patient who may need antibiotics for non-bacterial UTI, or is there a possibility of missing urethritis in those patients if you, I guess, if you get a catheterized specimen? So typically for me, if someone is symptomatic, if, if I believe that their symptoms are consistent with a UTI, and they don't have factors, like I mentioned, the increased body habitus, you know, the increased BMI, or, or they're not wheelchair bound, you know, those, those things that I listed. I, I don't always get catheterized samples. I only get them if I think the symptoms are vague, or I think that they won't be able to provide a midstream clean cash sample. If the culture, you're talking about urethritis, so you're thinking about, I, I assume you're talking about things like mycoplasma and urea plasma. If the standard urine culture is negative, yet symptoms are suggestive, then I do send the, the samples off, but it doesn't have to be catheterized if they're able to provide a good sample. Gotcha, thanks. Um, Dr. Ali Ahmed asked, um, shall we treat patients with indwelling catheters and asymptomatic pus in the urine? I guess that's uh, patients who come in with chronic catheters and you know draining... Uh, We've all seen the, the white urine coming out, but the culture comes back negative. We have all seen it, or the culture comes back positive, but I would argue that that's not an indication to treat. In those patients, a lot of times they have concentrated urine or there's sediment um, from having the indoline catheter. So the first thing we want to do is to irrigate those patients on a regular basis. I would definitely not be giving them antibiotics. Great, thanks. Uh, let's see, Mauro Calvente asked, what do you think about blueberry prevention in elderly women? Have you heard of that? I have heard of that, and actually the people who look at cranberry also, there's been some studies looking at blueberry. The data is not robust, and I, I don't specifically recommend it, but as, as you hear me say, I'm, I'm not opposed to anything that they can try. I just haven't seen, you know, when I did the Camels chapter, we really looked exhaustively for everything that we could mention, and I didn't see much on blueberry, so it wasn't worthy of putting into a textbook, but I would love to see future studies on that. What about... Um... Urine, uh, what about PCR of urinary organism testing versus the standard urine cultures? 
Yeah, so that's what the slide on the microbiome, that's exactly what that's talking about, the ex expanded quantitative urine culture. Um, and that's where there's that quote, challenge of interpretation. So I never recommend that. I think right now there are labs out there doing it. Um, but to me, again, the idea is that just knowing that you have more bacteria in the urine should not change your management. And I think the more antibiotics we throw at people, the more danger we're gonna cause because they're just developing more resistance. So I never recommend them. Um, I think that I, my personal opinion is that they may help in the future with us having more of an understanding, for example, of why certain patients have chronic bladder pelvic pain, the painful bladder syndrome, or urge incontinence, other lower urinary tract dysfunction, but specifically for the patients with UTIs, I don't look at those because I think you're just going to wind up using more and more antibiotics. Um, someone asked if you have any updates about the E. coli vaccine, like OM89. Uh, yeah. And if, is there any role also for a pro intravaginal probiotic? So I guess prevention methods. Right. So the vaccines were, um, they've been studied extensively in Europe and are available. They are not available in the United States. Um, the data is promising, but you know, when I initially looked, when I first prepared a talk on UTIs in about 2013 and I read about the vaccines, I got excited about them. But then I looked probably three or four years later and the data just hasn't really been validated. So right now they're experimental. I think the concept is great. For example, inoculating women vaginally with suppositories that may have low levels of E. coli. I think it sounds promising, but right now, as I said, it's not, it's not approved in the United States, and so it's not recommended. Um, the vaginal probiotics, uh, that's the, we talked about that there, we, we don't really know scientifically what to recommend. So again, to me, it makes sense, but I would love to see more studies on all of these things because the, the more that we can avoid antibiotics, the better for patients and society. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we have time for one last question here. Uh, do you have any experience uh, with uh, Corinibacterium uh, infection of the bladder or the upper tract? And I guess that's an opportunity maybe to speak to some of the atypical bugs that you've been seeing as well. Yeah, so there are a lot of atypical bugs and I think that they are, we're seeing them because we now have these new methods to detect bacteria um, with the RNA sequencing. And I think we don't really know how to approach these patients. So uh, with these atypical organisms, what I would say is that symptoms are the most important thing as I've been trying to drill home. And so if, you, if patients are symptomatic and they have an organism where you have speciation, go ahead and treat. But I think that um, you know, we're gonna be focusing on this more and more moving forward now that we have the ability to detect more organisms. Um, but the take home, one of the main take homes here is you have to be, be basing your treatment on symptoms. And if patients have burning, but they don't specify what kind of burning, ask them, is it burning with urination or is it vaginal burning? Because there's a difference. Um, and if they say, well, I had two nights where I woke up often, but, but that in my mind is not an indication for antibiotic treatment. So you really have to hammer home the idea that symptoms drive treatment. And if symptoms are suggestive and, and conclusive, then yes, go ahead and treat. Great, all right. Well, that's a, I think that's a perfect uh, conclusion here. Thank you again, Dr. Cooper. Really great presentation. Uh, we had 75 people on the call at this point, so uh, good showing this morning for Friday early morning, and um, we appreciate you participating in Empire, tuning in, encouraging the other Columbia folks and residents to join in as well. Uh, it's, been, it's been great, so thanks for, thanks for being here. Thank you for everything you've done. The Empire Series this has been tremendous. It's a tremendous initiative and we appreciate And it's a great for us to work with you. Even though you're not with us right now, we're still, you're always with us. You guys are so great job. Awesome. All right. So we're going to shift gears.